Today's video is brought to you by StoryboardThat.com. Please visit TeacherCast.net slash StoryboardThat for a limited time offer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 71st episode of the Tech Educator Podcast. My name is Jeff Bradbury from TeacherCast.net. Thank you out there so much for joining us. We are, of course, live here each and every Sunday night at 7 o'clock Eastern, broadcasting live on TeacherCast.tv. We've had a great weekend here over at TeacherCast. We were, of course, at the Edscape Conference up in New Milford High School. Uh, Want to give a big shout-out to our friends Eric Scheniger and Josh Stumpenhorst. They put on a great show um, over at TeacherCast.net this week. You can check out uh, some of the action from the Edscape conference. We were there broadcasting live. And right here, you can check out the entire Josh Stumpenhorst keynote address. He did an amazing job, and we have it here in its entirety. And for those of you out there who came to my presentation on Google Presentations, we also have that out there. Want to give a big shout out to our sponsors, storyboardthat.com is an amazing website. They just went through a complete overhaul. They're doing some really, really cool stuff out there. And if you go to teachercast.net slash storyboard, that uh, you can sign up for a discounted price, 25% off your order. I know it's the holiday season, and I know Halloween is coming up, and they have updated with some really, really, really cool uh, Halloween storyboards and, and characters and stuff like that. Certainly check that out. And speaking of doing some holiday stuff, want to also bring up the brand new TeacherCast shop. If you're looking to purchase anything from Amazon these days, check it out, shop.teachercast. You can get your podcasting equipment, any iPads, anything that you're looking for electronic. And of course, if you're interested in some great reading material, we have those awesome Corwin books that everyone's talking about. And of course, uh, again, our friend Eric Scheniger's Digital Leadership. We have a ton of great stuff over there. Of course, all of our archives can be found over at TechEducatorPodcast.com where you can find all 70 of our great episodes here. Want to bring on our co-host for the night, Mr. Sam Patterson. Sam, how are you doing, my friend? I am doing great. It's fall here in Southern California, which means it's 80 degrees and sunny. (laughs) So, you know, I can't complain. And uh, you seem to be in the – are you at Hogwarts right now? What is that behind you? <laughs> yes, yes. I'm actually in the Dragon's Den at Hogwarts, and um, I'm broadcasting live from the center of a sorcerer's studio. Excellent. So I'm looking for some of these books just to start flying and things like that. That's pretty cool. That, that will happen. Tell us a little bit about what's happening tonight before we bring on our guests. Will do. Tonight we've got a great panel put together on programming in primary. We've got Wes Fryer from Oklahoma, who's done some amazing stuff with programming and has written some work, written a book on hopscotch that actually is where I learned everything I know about programming. So he's going to be here. We've got Ann Jenks, who is a principal in the Oxnard School District, and her teachers are doing some awesome stuff with programming in the primary grades. 
and we have Gretchen from Codable. Nice. And Codable is an amazing app that I use with my kindergarten and first grade students to introduce them to programming concepts and get them started in this continuum of programming that I've got going at my school. Nice. Looking forward to a great show. want to bring on our other guest host tonight, Mr. Jeff Herb. Jeff, how are you tonight? Doing very well, Jeff. Good to see you. Good to see you. How are things going over there at the Instructional Tech Talk? Um, are, are you a Yosemite converter? Did you go through all that Apple stuff this week? I sure did. I am on Yosemite, and because I don't have Final Cut Pro, I think I'm rolling pretty smoothly. That is nice. Uh, yeah, everything seemed to transition pretty well, and so far I like everything that has been uh, updated. And and how is your continuity doing? Is that all? Is that all working for you? Yeah, it's amazing. That's I cool. love being able to start. Well, I got the sixth plus too. That came in last week. Oh, so. Somebody got a Christmas bonus already. Yeah, <laughs> nice. So I, uh, we got to talk about podcast sponsorships there, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I love being able to start an email while I'm walking to my office, and then being able to finish it on my computer. That's nice. Really cool. Now, did you have to get a bigger car to put it in when you go to work? <laughs> right. I had to rethink everything. I, I you know stopped up at a larger SUV, that kind of stuff. No. Very. <laughs> weird to go to a smaller screen when you go from the 6 plus to your computer and finish the email <laughs> yeah no kidding right well perhaps we can do a show on that sometime soon i want to bring on yeah. david saunders david how are you i'm good i'm good thanks for having me on i i spent one half of the weekend at the google summit in manchester connecticut and i'm really excited about tonight's topic nice um i heard this thing called youtube is starting to pick up did they talk anything about that yeah, there were quite a few sessions on YouTube, actually, which was great. Excellent, excellent. Sam, I want to have you introduce our guests here. Why don't you take the show away here? Excellent. Will do. I want to start by introducing Ann Jenks. Now, Ann is a principal in Oxnard. And how long have you been working with kids uh, and getting your stu- teachers doing coding, Ann? Oh, I started doing it. Actually, the coding was probably about two years ago when I really got interested in it. And I could really see the applications, you know, how it was going to really help our kids. My school is um, 99.9% Latino. It's 90%, um, you know, a Title I school and 90% English language learners. So the thing I like about coding is that uh, language is not a barrier. Anybody can learn to do it and anybody can be successful at it. Awesome. I'm looking forward to hearing more about what you're doing at your school. We've gotten the second segment of the show. I want to introduce our other guest. We've got Wes Fryer from Oklahoma, and Wes does so many amazing things. Uh, these days, they seem to mostly revolve around STEM. What are you up to, Wes? Hmm. So, Wes is actually uh, working on an audio project titled "Getting His Microphone to Work." Uh, I'm right back to him. While he susses that out, I want to bring on Gretchen from Codable. I met Gretchen last year when she was working with the Imagine K-12 startup incubator in Palo Alto. And now she and John and Neil are taking Codable into its second year. How's that going, Gretchen? Uh, It's great, actually. Things have been going really well. Uh, We finished Imagine K-12 in January. and we've been working on Codable for about two years now, so things are going really well. We've got, uh, you know, kids learning to code, um, and yeah, we're working on a web version, so that's exciting. 
A web version. Wow. Does anybody yeah. know about that? Is that an announcement? Um, it's been, we've been talking about it a little bit on Twitter. Uh, if you get our uh, weekly newsletter, you'll see hints about it in there from time to time. Um, but our goal is to have it out by the Hour of Code. So. Oh, awesome. Eyes peeled. Excellent. And the Hour of Code is the first week in December. Uh, it's sponsored by Code.org. And if you're a teacher who's thinking, gosh, I wonder if coding is something that might even fit into my class or my curriculum, the Hour of Code has developed and curated a bunch of amazing resources for our Code.org, rather, has developed and curated a bunch of amazing resources to support teachers in the Hour of Code and beyond the Hour of Code. So I encourage you to check them out. Uh, Wes, are you there? <laughs> no, Wes. All right, that's okay, because we persevere, because we're technology people. Uh, what I'd like to start off with is really a big question, because when we are looking at coding and introducing really anything these days into our curriculum, we really have to ask, why should a teacher give their time up to this, when there are so many things that we're held accountable for, so many pressures to teach math and science and STEM and reading? What is it about coding and programming that makes it something that teachers really should have in their curriculum? And, you know, I invite anybody to kind of chime in on this. I think the thing that's really great about coding is that um, for the states that have adopted the Common Core, you've got all four of the um, C's in there. You've got creativity, collaboration, communication, and critical thinking. And coding addresses all of those. So when you're teaching coding, it's not just about computer science or math. It really kind of spills over into every single subject matter. And I think it's particularly valuable at this time. I completely agree. I see a lot of kids uh, really working on their communication skills and interpersonal skills, especially, you know, in the, in the primary age ranges, that's really important. Um, so if you set up pro uh, pair programming groups, it's really good for them to start, you know, working together as a team, learning about sharing, learning to, you know, take turns. Um, so that's, a, you know, an added bonus to, to programming, too. Um, so you said peer programming groups. Could you talk a little bit about what that is? Uh, pair programming? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so pair programming is where you set up groups of two to three kids uh, to share an iPad or share a computer and kind of work together as a group to solve a problem. Um, so they can, you know, you give them a task. Um, so for example, if they were doing codable, have, you know, a certain number of levels that they would work on together and they would take turns. So one student would program the solution and then the other one would be able to kind of give tips or help or they would, you know, okay I think maybe if you did it differently it might work better um, and then they can rotate and so the next student will have the opportunity to code um, while the other one gets the you know the chance to kind of provide feedback and say well maybe if you did this the bug would go away um, so you get to work on communication skills as well as their programming and problem-solving skills now I noticed that Gretchen both you and Anne have talked a lot about 
things that aren't syntax and loops and uh, recursion or, or things like that. And I think that might be surprising to some people because so often when we think of programming, especially kids coding, I always think of the Doctor Who episode where the aliens have captured the children and they make them sit in front of the computers and type code a lot and it's like really quiet in the room. Um, but that is never what it looks like in the room when I've got, you know, my kids programming, right? There's so much conversation in the room and there's so much opportunity to, you know, build community while you're doing this work to not only focus on, you know, the logic that's happening, but also just the, the, the communication because it's, in, when I bring in the iPads and we use any of the coding tools that we have or the robots or whatever, it's a very high engagement situation and that's a high value learning tool. Um, and I don't always put them in pairs, but when I do, they're working hard to, you know, be a good partner and work appropriately in a pair because they want to take, you know, they want their turns. Um, one of my teachers for the kindergarten students made up these little signs. They're popsicle sticks with a little sign on it that says, I'm waiting to take my turn. So that they, and so the kid who's not programming has to hold on to that with both of their hands. So it helps them not touch the screen because it's so hard for them to not touch the screen. And, you know, we have to talk to them not only about things like, you know, making sure you take turns, but how to offer help, how to refuse help, how to ask for help. And what we see a lot of development around is perseverance and resilience. Have you guys noticed that students kind of pick that stuff up? Absolutely. I think the thing that all of my teachers are saying, <clears throat> my school's a K-5 school, but in kindergarten through fifth grade, they're all saying that there's a tremendous amount of resilience uh, that, you know, and I, I actually walked into a first grade classroom one time, and this little girl was doing, uh, I think it was like Lightbot. And she'd get to a certain point, and then the Lightbot would die, and then she'd go back to the beginning, and she'd do it over. But each time, she went a little bit further, so she was learning. And... I think the thing that's great about programming and coding is that we know that the way that you build synapses in the brain uh, is not by getting things easily, but by struggling and um, and trying to you know come trying to come to grips with problems. It's not by the teacher says something you memorize it and then you give it back. It's by working through things that you're actually you know learning more, learning more deeply, and actually you know having your your intelligence grow. So. Um, we find that this is probably one of the biggest benefits is that it's really taught kids to hang in there when they don't get the answer the first time, not to throw in the towel and give up, but to really hang in there because there is an answer. You just have to keep going till you find it. Definitely. I just noticed in the chat box, Craig mentioned that not all programming has to be done on devices. Have you guys seen any good examples of offline programming. Gretchen, I think Codable has something for that. Yeah, uh, part of our curriculum includes a uh, uh, Fuzz Family Frenzy, <laughs> which kind of gives some screen-free programming activities where you can set up whether it's a, an obstacle course or, you know, get from one point A to point B in the classroom uh, using the code that we provide. It's basically just symbols. Um, and you can program a partner to go through 
those steps to get to, you know, from point A to point B or through the obstacle course. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. I really, I actually encourage people to do that before getting any devices out uh, because it really helps the kids, especially at this age range, kind of uh, get a real world example of what programming really is and how specific you need to be uh, and really what it means to, to be coding. Yeah, Code.org had, um, besides all the other games that were connected like Angry Birds and Codable, they also had a paper pencil um, way that you could participate in your class. And um, University of California, Santa Barbara uh, has a program called KELP, and the beginning of that is paper pencil. So I think that, uh, you know, it's great that it doesn't mean if you don't have access to technology that you're not going to be able to um, do some of this. Now, I know that you have done some work with kelp, and this would probably be a good time to um, transition to talking specifically about what's going on in your school. Right. Well, we have two different things going. Um, the teachers, as I said, about two years ago, I started from Twitter, I started finding out about these different coding applications. My son's a computer engineer, and he's always been kind of geeky all the way through his life. So um, our family has been exposed to this. Uh, so anyway, I wanted the kids because I, I feel, you know, in my school especially, what I'm trying to do is provide opportunities and, um, you know, I, the opportunity of going into different careers that might result from uh, you know, learning to code early is something that I'm very interested in. So um, last year, I convinced everybody in the school, all the teachers, to do hour of code. I said, look, it's not an hour a day. It's one hour during the week. You can do it for 12 minutes a day. You might want to do it twice for a half an hour. And really, that was the turning point. People were so thrilled. The teachers were so thrilled with what they saw happen with the kids when they participated in this that they started like going way off on their own, you know, really like incorporating it into the classroom every single day. Um, and of course we saw great results. We saw that, as I said, the resilience went up, but also critical thinking, math reasoning scores went up. There were a lot of correlations between starting the coding and um, actual academic payoff. Um, so this year, what we did is we decided that we were going to do um, KELP, which is kids uh, enjoying learning programming. That's a program that's kind of like Scratch. It's, it's very similar and it comes from the University of California Santa Barbara's uh, computer science department. It's only for fourth and fifth graders and then we said, well, what are we going to do for K3? We actually have transitional kindergarten through uh, third grade. And by far the most popular coding application in our school is Codable. So the, um, <laughs> the <laughs> You know, what a coincidence. All out of Codable <laughs> School was just like the perfect solution. So now um, we have the kids that are um, actually transitional kindergarten. So we have four-year-olds that are coding too. So transitional kindergarten through third grade is doing Codable School or will be. We've got the, the subscription, you know, the purchase order for the subscription in. And then the fourth and fifth graders are going to do help. And then, of course, on the side, um, the teachers have many other applications that are loaded, and uh, one of these teachers that was really not wanting to get involved in this, not because she's not a great teacher, but just because of her own lack of self-confidence about being able to teach this. Once we did Hour of Code, I went into her classroom one day, and 
she had 13 different coding applications loaded onto the kids' iPads. We're a one-to-one -one iPad school and an Apple Distinguished Program, so um, we're able to do, I mean, we've been very fortunate to have this, and we're able to do a, a lot of uh, things with the iPads because every child has their own device, and not only do they have it in school, but they can take them home. Uh, but she just, so you've got a 30-year vet here who was really tentative about doing this at all that now has embraced it fully and is always saying how incredible it is and, uh, you know, what a wonderful thing it's been for her kids. So you said that, you know, her involvement in the Hour of Code helped make that happen. Could, could I ask you to drill down a little deeper and what really changed for her? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that once, um, first of all, our, the uh, site tech did something that was rather brilliant, and what he did is he um, took all the little separate Hour of Cold activities and put them on our website so that all the kids had to, they didn't have to search for it. All they had to do is go in and click on it, and it opened up. Um, and as I said, when she saw the engagement, but not just the engagement, what she says um, is that, you find tech leaders in odd places, kids that might be very quiet and very reticent um, in English language arts, social studies, science, and math, suddenly are the ones everybody in the class is going to because they just get it. You know, they sit down and it just makes perfect sense to them. So she really, really enjoyed seeing that. The kids that maybe didn't shine in other areas just suddenly blossomed when they started doing uh, this coding. And I think that's what everybody's kind of enjoying. I had a child in a special day class last year that had blown through 30 levels of codable in the first two weeks of school. That's awesome. And so, you know, it, I mean, it just goes to show there are different kinds of intelligences, and this is something that's really giving children that might not shine otherwise an opportunity to shine and to show what they can do. Now, could you talk a little bit about <clears throat> why you're, I mean, we've talked some about what the teachers have seen, kind of the, the, the power of witnessing that effect on the students and how that inspired them to drive further into it, but talking, could you talk specifically about why coding is important for your population of students? Sure. Well, like I said, um, We've got over 90% of the kids that get free and reduced lunch. Um, we're 90% English language learners. Uh, and the thing about coding that's great is, by the time the kids learn this, they'll have three languages. They'll have English, Spanish, or whatever other language they speak, and, and programming, which is a language in, it, in itself. Um, I'm all about opportunity. And when I came to that school, this is my eighth year of being principal there, uh, at the end of the year, uh, I gave, uh, there was a drawing, all, all the kids that, uh, you know, got all of these, it's called Catch of the Day, so they're just doing something good that any teacher or campus assistant can give it to them. We're in a drawing for um, an iPod Shuffle, and a sixth grade girl won it, and when I gave it to her, she said, what is it? And, you know, mind you, this is, this is seven years ago, so this isn't like it was 20 years ago. She didn't know what it was, and that was the big aha moment for me that these kids didn't have access to technology at home and that if they didn't get it in school they were going to be so far out of the uh, you know the loop that uh, they weren't going to have opportunities because basically if you're not just not just familiar with technology but if you're not fluent in technology you could barely get a job at McDonald's now 
And of course, I really want these kids to have opportunities. And when you hear that there is a need for one million computer programmers by the year 2020, and we have 400,000 now, and the average programmer makes $78,000 a year, I'm saying, why wouldn't I want to make sure that my children, the, you know, the kids in my school, have that kind of an opportunity? So as I said, to, you, to me, it was almost a moral imperative that to make sure that these kids have the opportunity to go as far as they want to go. Definitely. I, I think that's very well said. Um, and there's a lot of you know, opportunity out there. I mean, this can take place in so many schools. And I love the story of your teacher who was essentially go, went from thinking this is something I don't know and I can never learn to giving her students all of that access to the different tools. And you know, it reminds me that one of the biggest challenges to teaching coding is just adopting that mindset of decentralized expertise. Exactly. The fact that you know we don't know everything, and that's okay. And the kids are going to know more than we do because they're digital natives. You know, so what I find a lot of times is that the kids are giving the teachers the answer, and we just have to give up that kind of 19th century model of you know being the you know the person that knows everything up in the front of the classroom and get into a more collaborative model where we're facilitators and realize that these children are going to know it just just intuitively they know more about technology than you know than most of us and I think that's fabulous and I think that's great and something that we should celebrate and it's very empowering for the kids and that's really what we want Right, we want to model for them the process of finding out what you don't know. And, you know, one of the amazing things about being connected is that there is access to so much knowledge, formal and informal, and that any of us can become creators of knowledge. Uh, once I teach my students about learning from screencasts, they very quickly want to become creators of screencasts. Exactly. Um, you know, then they're like, oh, I figured something out. And the first time they figure something out for themselves, they want to make a screencast about that because they know someone else is going to have that problem. And that's when, you know, what I love is when I see kids kind of making that leap and engaging in that community of information. Um, this would be a great time to transition over to Wes, who is now with us live audio and video. Wes, how are you doing? <laughs> did, was it, did, was that a prompt? Am I, is my audio on now? Yes. Yeah, your audio is on now. <laughs> All right. Great. So isn't it just great when things just don't even work and you feel like, you know, a beginner again? Um, which actually <laughs> is, a, is a good thing about coding. You know, as you were describing your kids being experts, my favorite part of helping fourth and fifth graders uh, learn coding through Code.org, Scratch, and Hopscotch. This year has mainly been Hopscotch is when students will, um, you know, really be, be fighting to get to the projector so that they can be the ones teaching each other, you know, what they've found. And when there's a group that'll collect around a table and everybody's seeing this, here, can you show that to everybody? Um, it's, it's that uh, iterative lesson cycle that um, we learn about from the, from the uh, you know, media lab at MIT and from Mitch Resnick where we're, we're imagining, we're creating, and we're sharing, we're reflecting, and it circles back 
it doesn't happen all the time, and it's amazing how different it can be with classes. But when students are buying in in that way, that, that, that they, you know, have something to teach, the expertise is often from different students who weren't all, you know, the ones that the kids would expect or, you know, in other classes have been the, the students that have, that have excelled. I, I just love that. And I particularly love it when adults can observe that because mm -hmm. I've learned that it's really not – it's almost, it's like zero, your, your effect is like 5% if you're going to try to teach adults about coding without kids. But if kids can be present and enough kids can be present where their excitement can be infectious and they'll be, you know, showing what they're doing and teaching each other, that changes adult perceptions about student capability, the value of coding, all of this, far more than me trying to be persuasive and, you know, put my best my best uh, PD skills at work. I just, I can't do it. But kids can when they are on fire with excitement for all the different skills that fit into coding and, you know, animating sprites and moving across the screen and learning about negative numbers and all of, of those things. So that, that's become one of my goals is doing professional development around coding where adults get to be with kids and get to be learners with them and, and just have that experience, which, which I've found to be transformative. PD is not transformative very often, I've found, but it can be when kids are on fire with excitement for coding, and they are basically just doing what they would naturally do, but adults are there to observe and watch that. So. That's awesome. I mean, we're, we're starting this year our first coding club, and we have um, a bunch of students signed up in the upper school, which is grade 7, 8, and 9. Apparently, I'm off-center here. And, um, but we also have a bunch of faculty who signed up, and they were initially reluctant to because they thought they didn't have the expertise, but I convinced them to join as students, and now we're doing some partner coding uh, during some evening events where they're partnered with students and working through some problems together, and I would absolutely agree with what you said. Once the students are bought in, it just helps to fuel the fire to get faculty on board. So, Wes, earlier, we did a little bit of an introduction. Could you take a couple minutes and just tell us about the work that you're doing at your site, uh, specifically with Hopscotch? And I'd love it if you got to the story about the kid with the emoji that changed everything. In my <laughs> oh, my class. gosh, yeah. So um, I'm a fourth and fifth grade STEM teacher, and STEM is a regular special in our elementary school in Uh, except instead of once a week for the year, things like music, I see students every other day for a semester. So, um, flip with the art, the art class, and maybe two times in a row. It's, it's I get to do it eleven times. Um, iPads and. Uh, I love Scratch, have done different workshops and things with kids with Scratch, and we have the computer lab, but needed to find something that we could really do on the iPad, and so when Hopscotch uh, came out, we started found, uh, something that my kids could use as a resource, because what I learned quickly and is affirmed over and over is that I don't want to be the direct instruction source for my students. I want to empower them with some challenges and show them some things, but then let them explore and let them come back and, you know, have this iterative lesson cycle where 
you know, it's just not much direct instruction at all. <clears throat> so last year I, I went ahead and just created an ebook about hopscotch really as a resource for my kids. And then I thought, well, why don't I, you know, go ahead and share this with others. And, and uh, right before publishing this, um, you know, one of my kids had discovered you could expand the number of sprites available as characters in Hopscotch by adding the emoji keyboard. It's like, in a, like an international keyboard, like you'd add French or German, you add emoji, but then you can add text objects. And oh my gosh, now instead of, you know, 12 or 15, whatever sprites, I mean, you have hundreds. And so uh, we just recorded a short video with, with my phone and then, you know, linked that on YouTube to... Um, you know, within the book, and it's just so cool for kids to be able to teach and share like that, and then for that student to have impacted others, um, you know, I I just looked on Amazon, and I mean, there have been like 350 downloads of that book in the last 30 days, and, and cool. you know, that that's cool, awesome. but what's, what's even more awesome is just when you hear directly from teachers, I got a tweet from a teacher in South Africa um, I think this was at the end of last last year. You know, just hey, thanks. My kids have been doing hopscotch and coding, and it's been great. And you know, one of my fifth graders from last year who discovered this about emoji. You know, we recorded a video, put it out there to share. You know, who knows how many kids that he's taught, and you know, that's exciting for them. But the the real excitement in the classroom of of kids moving from that consumer to the creator and seeing how the math connects and and, and just how the problem solving and the creativity connects. It, it doesn't, you know, snap for all the kids where everyone loves this and this is what they all want to do, but it definitely, you know, captures the imagination of some kids. And I think that code.org, which you mentioned earlier, is just a great tool to put in the hands of kids because they can go so far. I mean, I want my kids to be able to go so much further than I could take them, either with my knowledge or with the time that we have in class. And so these tools, Codable, um, these apps, really can allow students to, to go further than we could take them if we were holding their hand. But the honest truth is, if we were just holding their hand, walking down a direct instruction road, we wouldn't go very far at all. Mm -hmm. So um, I, it's just an exciting time to be involved in STEM and in coding, and it's great that the Hour of Code gives that encouragement. You know, my, my best advice for people is to let the kids lead and to find time for other adults to come and come around when the kids are learning and sharing, because every time that happens, and it's not all the time, but, but every time it does, adults walk away with different perceptions than they had before about coding, its value, and what kids can do, and, and answering that why question. Kids will answer that why question better for adults when they see them, you know, engaging in coding and teaching about coding, you know, than when we try to break it down and, you know, cite the standards and all that, which we can do, but we're not as persuasive as the kids can be. Definitely, and I think, you know, on some level we have to cite the standards and put that argument out there, there so that people are like, oh, okay, great. But you're right, watching the kids do the work is transformative. Just the other day, my boss, uh, the tech director at our school, sat through one of my second grade classes where we were working with Hopscotch, and it was the first time he'd seen me work with them, even though we've been doing some work. He, you know, busy and I'm busy and it's hard to get into each other's classes, and he was like, that was amazing. They did this and that. I, yes, it's amazing. And you give them a little bit of information, give them some resources, give them a challenge, and get out of the way. 
Um, one of the greatest things I learned from Wes's book on hopscotch was how to work with an open platform because coding on the iPad can kind of come in a couple of different flavors. You can have a leveled uh, game style app where the kids work through a series of puzzles and the puzzles get incrementally more challenging and develop, you know, introduce new skills. Or you can have something like Hopscotch or Scratch Junior, which is really kind of a blank canvas. And a blank canvas can be pretty challenging if you don't have a good sense of what to do with it and how to kind of develop those skills that we would develop, you know, more naturally in a in a more leveled, you know, puzzle-based approach. But I, I have to tell you, Wes, some of the things that my fourth and fifth graders came up with once they figured out that, oh, for example, the emoji keyboard has a nose and it also has a finger. And once you put those into a game situation, you know, you can, there's collision rules you can set up so that when one icon hits the other, you get points, right? So suddenly the students were passionate and excited and they figured out a lot of great principles of coding to make a nose-picking game. But, you know, that's really the charm of student choice, isn't it? Yep, yep, that's right, that's right. And, you know, I'd, I'd mention that um, Hopscotch has changed a lot in the last year, and I'm working on, you know, releasing kind of an updated version. There's a community now where you can have the students share their share their products and <clears throat> what they call it branching or fork, you know, it's called branching, but it's forking, you know. And one of the one of the most important things I think we talk about is what when it's appropriate to copy Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes in school, you know, we, we, we try to, it's wrong, it's wrong to copy. Well, wait a minute, how did we learn to write letters in first grade? Oh, yeah, we copied the letters that we saw and we, we traced them. So in the context of coding or making catapults or other things, we're talking about, is this okay to copy? Yeah, absolutely. We're in, in, in talking about branching and forking and where creativity comes from. And, and, and that it, anyway, that that's, that's an essential part of the process is learning and seeing what other people have done, being able to see their code, you know, and then being able to create and build on what they've done. So uh, this year, I've just done a four-day lesson cycle, which sounds like it's not very much, and it, I, I wish I could do more, but having students explore the projects that they've, you know, put out there on the Hopscotch community was kind of the, the start, and, and what I've seen is kids would, many will naturally stay there. They would stay in the, I'm going to play someone else's game. It really takes the teacher encouraging them to say, okay, now guys, we're going to learn how to make a collide game, or we're going to mm -hmm. learn how to, to make art, and, you know, getting them to move beyond the I'm playing the game to I'm creating the game. I really think my role is uh, giving them a taste, but then opening that door for those who want to pursue it further to go ahead and do that. I wish we had more time. You know, we could just do coding all can't. But if we can generate that site so that, um, you know, if they can have access to an iPad, they can they can grab Hopscotch and then the Hour of Code and other things to, to go further with it. Um, so I, that's kind of a different way of looking at our role, too, is it's not just the skills you're going to get in my class that I'm going to be able to assess, but I, I want to... I want to help start a fire of excitement for you for coding and then, you know, point you in the direction that you have additional resources and tools so that you can go further with it. And then I'm going to celebrate with you as you come back and tell me, oh, look, look what I found. You know, here, show that to our class, that kind of thing. Oh, I totally agree. 
Um, one of the most amazing things, I went from teaching high school English to working with elementary students in technology, and one of the things I can't believe is how easy it is to get kids excited about learning with some of these things. And it's not necessarily all of them, but there will be kids who come back and, I mean, I had a kindergartner last year who, after I'd used Codable twice in class, came back and said, I finished all the levels. And I was like... I'm like, when? He says, yesterday. I'm like, that's so <laughs> exciting. Of course, I'm thinking, huh, that was kind of part of my lesson plan for the next couple tech classes. <laughs> obviously, if, if this is an easily accessible thing that they can get at home, I can't count on them only doing it during class. Like, they're going to get in there and work on it when I'm not there. But then they have that opportunity to be that expert and to come back and, you know, lead the other students oh. and, and to go further than, than they'd be able to go before. So it's right. uh, it, that, that whole idea of the co-learner, we're all learners, and sometimes I'm the expert learner, sometimes you're the expert, but we're learners together. I think coding provides a great environment for that, and it, it also provides this idea. My friend Karen Montgomery talks about the beginner mind. You know, when you first learn to ski, water, or snow, you first learn to skate, you feel unstable, you're unsure of yourself. There's all these things. You're like, man, I don't, I don't know what to do. A lot of times as teachers, we don't have that experience much, and coding kind of can put us in that, that space. Uh, and then, you know, if, if we're turning to students and learning together, it helps us model the idea that we, we do not have all the knowledge. We don't want to pretend that we do, um, and we're going to learn together. We're going we're gonna to be better together learning together than, you know, if we were just relying on one person. So coding is a great place a concrete environment to you know kind of live that idea live that out with kids definitely and I want to take a little bit of time and talk to someone who's working on getting coding into everybody's hands everywhere uh, with her iPad app codable and Gretchen one of the founders of codable is here with us and Gretchen I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what codable is but more so about why you decided to spend so much of your time and energy on this mission and what you hope that Codable can do in a classroom. Uh, sure, yeah. So Codable is uh, a game that is designed for K to second grade but is used all the way up uh, through fifth grade and middle school that teaches the fundamentals of programming. So we introduce kids to conditions, loops, functions, things that are the building blocks of every programming language. Uh, and so we do it all in a really fun game. Uh, there's furry aliens and they've crashed their UFO and it's the student's job to program the aliens to go through all of these lighted mazes on the planet Smeaborg. And so you can see it's a really exciting and fun kind of world that we've created, uh, but it also teaches them, you know, perseverance, problem solving, and coding while they're playing this game. Um, and so part of the reason that we started it was um, we had a lot of friends who had kids who they wanted to start introducing them to programming, but they really were unsure about, like, kind of like what you said, you know, if you're starting to do something you've never done before, you feel a little bit unsure about how to do it. And so our friends are feeling like that. They wanted to get their kids introduced to programming, but they had no idea how. Um, and that was two years ago. And since then, we've kind of transitioned away from 
Uh, I mean, we still have a lot of parents that use Codable with their kids, but we have a lot of resources for teachers because we feel like the best way to get coding into as many hands as possible is by providing unreal, you know, unmatched resources for teachers. And so that's why we have a lot of our curriculum materials uh, that kind of guide teachers, uh, you know, through the game and explain the concepts that we're teaching in a way that's really easy to understand if you don't have any programming experience because we realize, you know, there's an incredible demand for programmers and there's an even bigger demand for people who understand programming and can teach it. And so, uh, so that's why we kind of provide all of those things to make uh, coding something that's easily accessible to as many people as possible. Um, and so that brings me to why we decided to focus on this age range. Um, my co-founder actually started programming when he was six and, you know, stopped for a while in school. He's, yeah, he's still a programmer. Um, stopped for a while, but then started learning again as an adult and fell back on all of the things that he learned as a kid. And so we feel like if you can start being introduced to the concepts as early as possible, it builds a foundation to fall back on if you do want to decide to go into programming as an adult or, you know, you can go through, you know, all of your education learning to code. Um, but even more than that, it's good for learning to communicate in the 21st century, right? Everybody at this day, in this day and age, needs to understand how technology works um, and they need to be able to communicate with the people who build it. And so whether or not these kids decide to be programmers, uh, it's them to be able to communicate with the programmers that are in their workforce. So that's kind of why we decided to start at such a young age. Um, and then with Codable, we've made it really easy. There's no language barrier. You don't need to be able to read. It's all symbol-based. So that was kind of how we overcame this initial barrier to entry when you're starting to learn to code. Now, when I first met you, uh, actually, I think I met John first at Imagine K-12, I was trying to figure out what I could do with my kids who couldn't yet read to prepare them to program. And here I found someone who says, it's a programming language for people who can't read. And I thought, no <laughs> way. Um, so I was really impressed because, like you said, it's all symbolic. It's mostly arrows. Um, it pairs really well. I've got a couple of different types of robots who just use arrow-based commands, so it pairs really well for preparing the kids to work with that. But what I was really amazed by was that, I mean, I guess in retrospect I had a prejudice against very young people and thought that they didn't understand things. And... <laughs> You know, I thought they didn't understand things because they couldn't read and write as well as other people. And this had probably been reinforced by years and years of working in, as a high school English teacher. But when I first started working with the students and they were in a level encodable where they're using functions. And encodable, a function works as it's one command that when you put it in the command line, holds three other commands, and then they have to load the command, those three commands into it. And each time they call that function in the program, the fuzz will execute those three commands. This is great for my kinders because we're working on pattern recognition, and I have them actually say out loud while they're working, write, write, 
down, right, up, right. And then I'll say, okay, did you hear a repeated pattern of three? And they'll say, oh, yeah, right, up, right. So they did all of that. And after they successfully completed a couple of those levels, I said, so tell me about the function. And they explained exactly how it works. And I said, well, what does it mean on this screen? And they told me that on this screen it means right, up, right. And I said, well, what will it mean on the next screen? And they'll say, well, it'll mean whatever I make it mean on that next screen. And in my head, I'm just totally freaking out. I'm trying to play it really cool in front of this kid, right? <laughs> in my head, I'm totally freaking out because this kindergartner who cannot read is explaining a concept that I have struggled to teach sixth grade students in math. Mm. Because in addition to teaching high school English, I've taught math, you know, as far down as sixth grade, and variables are hard for them. They just don't get it. And here is a kid who obviously completely grasps the logic behind variables. And that was a real, a real sea change moment for me. When you were coming up with Codable, how did you figure out what kids could and couldn't manage cognitively? Good question. Um, a lot of research. So for the first two months that we were working on Codable, I spent all of my time doing uh, research on early childhood development, understanding how kids think um, and when they start to think logically, and it's about four years old. And so uh, after we did that, we came up with our first version of the game. It had eight levels. It had no menu. It barely had a play button. And, <laughs> and we took it and we tested it with a bunch of kids ranging from three years old all the way up to 13. And we tested to see, you know, where, when the kids started to really grasp the concepts, we'd ask them, kind of like you did with the function, we'd say, okay, what, what does this mean? When you use this colored tile, we use colored tiles in Codable for conditions. Um, so I'd say, what does this colored tile mean? And they'd say, if the tile is purple, then go down, which is an if-then statement, which is exactly what conditions are. And so... Um, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. So we kind of used that as a test to see, you know, whether or not the kids were able to understand it. And initially, Codable was supposed to be for uh, kids as young as four. And through that testing, we were able to see that it wasn't the logic that they couldn't understand. They could all, they all, even the three, some of the three-year-olds were able to understand the logic and the programming involved. Um, it was the actual motor skills of dragging and dropping where they had difficulty. So it's amazing once you remove kind of the uh, the barrier of knowing how to read and like if you sky that's really easy to pick up and you work at your own pace how young of an age kids can start to learn really advanced concepts um, and so that's why we decided on the five uh, five-year-old uh, age range um, five and up was because it at five, between four and five, kids get the motor skills to drag and drop. So, um, so yeah, we did a lot of testing in the early days, and we still continue to test everything that we put out in the game. We test with kids. Um, a lot of times we'll go to schools in the Bay Area, or we'll talk with teachers on this on this lovely map behind me. These are the people that test things for us. So uh, we'll test things out in the classroom. I'll go and watch kids using codable in the classroom and then we'll make decisions based on you know that feedback on where we, what we need to add to the game. Now one of the things I want to mention about codable is that in working with teachers you actually ended up developing a second platform 
that is specifically for the classroom where you've added uh, structures where teachers can sign in and they can see all of their students, they can see the progress that they're doing. How do you see Codable being used at, in the classroom and as a teaching tool through Codable Class? Um, so it's used in a lot of different ways. I don't think that really the adding the teacher things really changed the way that Codable was being used. It mostly just enhanced it. Um, so we, we have Codable being used in after-school programs, you know, in technology classes as, as a reward at the end of, you know, morning work or whatever. Uh, we, we want Codable to be very flexible because we realize that coding isn't a main part of the curriculum. Even though some schools are making it, um, it's still something that you kind of have to work to include. And so we wanted to keep it as flexible as possible. But now that we have this progress tracking and being able to create classes and manage all of your student profiles and sync on any, any iPad, um, we've kind of seen an increase in teachers' ability to work Codable in. Um, so maybe they're using it in a lot of different ways, but they're able to enhance kind of uh, the one-on-one -on -one, uh, work with the students, set up better pair programming in groups depending on how, what, you know, what they see the kids are working on based on the progress dashboard that we provide. Hmm. Um, so you're really able to kind of enhance uh, the programming education as opposed to kind of change it, if that makes any sense. Definitely. I've noticed that using Codable class it's really easy for me to have students, I have students that are in my after school K through 3 programming club, but I also work with them daily, not daily, but weekly in the, um, in the tech class. And because I set up the classes for tech class, when they want to use Codable in the programming club, we just go to their class and get them signed in and they're able to pick up exactly where they left off instead of ending up at a level that's not appropriate for them. And one of the things that I love about the new update you have for Codable Class is it takes the students right to the last point they were at. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. We were so, so we got a lot of feedback about that. And I go and watch, you know, like I was saying, I go and watch kids using Codable in the classroom all the time. And, and I kept seeing kids having to tap, 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 tap to figure out what level they were on. And so it was like, mm. hey, we're fixing this. <laughs> now it's just one button. Uh, I think Neil coined it our quick quick start button or something like that. <laughs> uh, they just tap and it takes them right back to the level that they were last on, which is really helpful. You don't have to remember what level you're on. So I think any, I think any codable um, class for our school was probably the quickest decision our leadership team ever made. I just had to kind of pass it by them once, and everybody said yes. You know, so. It's really amazing, especially when you have, you know, limited funding and you can only spend it. And there's usually a lot of discussion about do we really want to get this or not. And uh, once they heard that there were, you know, that that additional information was available to them where they could track kids, they just said, yeah, absolutely, we want it. So um, thanks, Gretchen. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yay. That means that we're doing something right. So, And, you know, to kind of add to that, we're always listening to uh, – to what teachers are saying because you know you all are in the classroom every single day so if you all have feedback if you use Codable and you say oh I wish that it did this a little bit better or this is really not necessary um, we're always listening to that so you can always reach out to us we're a team of three people so it's tough to kind of get to things as quick as we want to but we always listen to, to what you all are saying so 
So thank you. I'm glad to hear that. It means we're doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, so to kind of bring this to a close, I'd like to go around and have everybody who wants to chime in and talk about where they think they'd want to go next with coding or what their coding ambitions are. And I can kind of kick this off with um, now that I've seen how engaged students are in programming, I'm really looking for ways to bring more content connections in. Uh, Wes and his book on Hopscotch really helped me find some great ways to do math lessons that involve programming and Tinker has some good STEM lessons out there with programming, but you know I'm looking specifically at my pre-reading kids and the, the project I'm really interested in right now is how do I create a programming learning experience that helps students build literacy skills. So that's kind of where I'm going. I think um, in our school we're always trying to uh, get to the redefinition stage you know, doing things with technology that you couldn't have done without it. Um, and certainly the creativity aspect of coding is very important. So um, the end of KELP, which is two, it's two 12 to 16 lesson modules, is that you create your own computer game. And uh, in Los Angeles in October, they have an event called Indicade, which is an independent um, game competition that's actually, there's no age limit. So what I said is we're going to, in the school, all the fourth and fifth graders, and anybody else, because we do scratch in the after school program, so this might be open to more kids, but anybody in the school that wants to design a game will have this competition. And actually, I talked to people at Game Desk the other day, and they're willing to come up and judge it. So it's impartial, and we're going to choose one, one boy and one girl. Um, we're going to give them an entry fee to, whoops, went the wrong way. Uh, to indicate so that uh, they're going to be able to go down there and actually have their game judged in a competition, which is, I think, going to be pretty exciting. I had never been, and I went last weekend, and I was kind of blown away. And I think it's real-world application, and I think a lot of this has to be, you know, this isn't just some, you know, kids always will say, well, why are we doing this? And I think they need to see that there are real-world applications for the things that we're doing in school. Uh, and I think this will be a really exciting experience for our kids, and I'm excited to do it. That's yeah, great. that indicates sounds great. Yeah. Next level for me, hopefully, is going to be this summer uh, doing a week-long camp for STEM students and teachers. This last year, uh, my other co the co-teacher that teaches at our other elementary, um, Amy Lefholtz, and I did a two-day workshop for teachers, and then this uh, next summer, you know, I have talked and heard people talk a lot about we need more kids around for PD, but I haven't been involved in, in, in enough opportunities where that really happens. So we're going to try to have uh, 20, well, open it up for 25 students and 15 kids and um, work with Scratch, uh, work with Codable, work with Hopscotch, and also with Minecraft as part of the coding parts. We'll have other parts too. But, uh, you know, have a week where we're, we're learning building together and uh, where teachers are having that opportunity to have PD but doing it where they can be the student that's and, great. and see students in action and be with the students so that's we're going to try that the second week of June this year awesome I think next on our roadmap I guess as 
as far as Codable is concerned, we're working on the web version uh, for the Hour of Code, which we're really excited about. Um, John is actually at this very moment working on our next update, which will let kids unlock fuzzes using the coins that they collect in the game. So yeah, that's really exciting. Um, but even further and beyond that, we're looking at ways that we can start integrating coding into every subject. Um, because coding isn't going to be something that kids are doing you know, by itself, isolated. It's across every industry. And so we want to start figuring out ways that we can help teachers introduce coding in every subject, no matter what it is, whether it's reading, uh, language arts, science, math, um, and kind of use coding in any subject. Um, so that's kind of our long-term goal teaser <laughs> with, with some of the next stuff we're working on. That sounds really exciting. I want to thank all of you for joining us for this great conversation about programming in primary. And I know it's a conversation that's going to continue. Um, the links for all of the resources we've talked about will be in the show notes. And I encourage anybody who's watching the show now live with us or after the fact to reach out to really anybody on the show. Uh, ask questions, share experience. We are all so very excited about this new mode of learning. Um, I keep coming back to a Mitch Resnick quote where he says, first you learn to code, then you learn through code. And I think that, you know, at this point in time, we're really shaping what that's going to look like. So thank you all for both your contribution and your willingness to be part of the conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Now I'm going to give the show back to Jeff, and we're going to talk about a very exciting online conference that anyone can attend. We are, certainly, and I uh, want to bring on one more co-host to the uh, program. This is Mr. Robert, and Robert's been eyeing up our microphone the entire show here. And uh, Robert's kind of important because uh, this week is the start and the kickoff of the K-12 online conference. And before we have Wes uh, give a little bit of background information, of course, you can find out more information about this over at k12onlineconference.org and one of the things on here and, and I, 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 I urge everybody to check this out over at k12onlineconference.org is this amazing video down here that says igniting innovation in teaching and learning and uh, the keynote for this year's uh, k12 online conference just happened to be Professor Wes Fryer. Wes um, I gotta tell you man thank you so much. This video was absolutely amazing. It was uh a joint venture between you and your daughter, I believe, and you talked a lot about the differences between or the similarities between teaching and going into technology and starting a fire. Um, talk to us a little bit about the keynote, but first talk to us a little bit about what the K-12 online conference is. Hey, well, much for highlighting the conference. This is really a work of love and passion for many Many educators who've been involved, this is the ninth year of K-12 Online. Uh, started back in 2006 with a, a conversation, I think, between Will Richardson and, uh, and uh, Darren Kropatois and uh, Cheryl Nussbaum Beach. And, uh, Dean Cheresky got involved, and I got pulled more along the way and said, hey, we've got these tools. We could have a free conference and, and let you know innovative teachers share, share ideas. So I've been an organizer um, since it started, but uh, you know, less 
involved this this last year and and this year was very honored to be asked to share the keynote. So it is uh, basically a series of four presentations per day once the real conference starts uh, this next week and the regular conference. Um, three different or sorry, four different strands and all of the presentations are asynchronous so that means that you don't as you know as we are today we're, we're live you know at the same time in different places uh, you don't have to be live um, at the same time uh, because the presentations are all recorded so um, each day those presentations will go live at 8 a.m. Eastern time and the first week we, we have strands for stories for learning and games and gamification and the next week we're gonna have passion driven learning in steam so just lots of great ideas teachers share you know their ideas. It, this has been a, a transformative opportunity for me to connect with with many educators. Not only learning from them during the conference, but then following them on Twitter, following their blogs. You know, and being able to engage. Um, you know, just like Sam said. I, you know, any of us here, I'm sure, are going to be excited and happy to to you know answer questions and see how we can help other people out. And that's that that's such a different thing than a typical conference when you when you go in here, and that's pretty much it. You know, the idea is for Kate. Not only getting ideas, but you know, linking, ha being in dialogue, and then being connected with people, and that's one of the most important things we can as educators is be connected educators. It is Connected Educators Month after all. It certainly is. Wes, let me ask you a big favor. Can you back the camera up just a little bit? We we moved the the camera on you here, and then um, down just a little bit. Now again, this is a completely yeah, online conference um, here, and and you know, Jeff, let me bring you in here. Why is it important that educators take the time to go to online conferences? I mean, essentially, you are just checking out these videos, but they are amazing, amazing videos. Jeff, why is it important for a, an administrator, in your point, in your part, to share these great resources with your staff? Well, I just think it takes the difficulty of getting to this content out of it. Um, a lot of the reason that our teachers don't go to conferences or don't like going to conferences is one, they miss out on that opportunity to be with the students, and two, it's difficult for them to prep a lesson that will be as beneficial as if they were in the classroom. They kind of feel bad almost, the fact that they're leaving um, and unable to be with the students. So I think having that content available for them to be able to consume whenever it is that they can is really, really important. So I, I completely agree that the online access, whether it's during their conference period or at home later at night, to be able to review that content is really mm -hmm. cool. David, as, as somebody who's working in media sciences, I would assume that a conference like this would be very, very valuable to not only watch and view, but also to archive for future uses. What would you say to a teacher that's like, I don't know, should I take my prep period and watch one of these videos? What types of things do you get out of these amazing conferences? Yeah, I mean, one of the big things that we're trying to figure out is a way to archive our professional development in general. And so we're in the process of trying to create a website to house lots of different types of information and, and webinars and seminars and all that. And so we're always encouraging our faculty to take that time on their own time, on their own initiative to find something that they're passionate about. And so we're constantly offering opportunities and putting things in front of them and hoping that they're going to bite. And, and I'm glad that you mentioned passion and things that you are passionate about. Sam, you happen to be passionate about standing inside of elevators. Talk to us a little bit about what that has to do with the K-12 online conference. Well, for the K-12 online conference, I my session is on programming in primary, 
And my buddy Waka actually did a little elevator pitch about <clears throat> uh, why programming in primary is important, and that's part of the presentation. Um, it turns out that Waka may not have completely understood what I meant when I asked him for an elevator pitch, but he did a good job anyway. That's nice. Uh, Wes, one of the neat things about these presentations is that they are short. Like, you know, the limit that we were given was 20 minutes. So that means that in a 45-minute prep period, a teacher can watch these conversations and really get a lot out of them. Why is it important that these conversations be only around 20 minutes? Well, I think part of the inspiration for that came from TED Talks, Uh, you know, having something that was uh, very small, digestible, and, you know, concentrated. Um, we're all used to breakout conference sessions and things that are 45-minute and 60-minute, and, and those can be great, but it was just really, you know, have that impactful um, 20 minutes. And so it's a real challenge as a presenter. Uh, it was, I was thankful as a as the pre-conference keynote to go a little bit longer than that, but it's it's hard, you know, to get your message, you know, concentrated into that small amount of time. And, uh, and, and part of that is just to try and um, make it a, a, an accessible and very impactful experience. And I'll mention, too, in addition, to, on iTunes U, um, thanks to the hard work of Peggy George, all of the presentations uh, or sorry, are not only available on YouTube, they're available on iTunes U as well. And so you can subscribe and, and be able to download those. So, and there, the, the plan is to I'll have these available forever. So, um, you know, as, as folks see, see things that they're enjoying, being able to share those with others and uh, not, not having, oh, this is only here for 30 days or, you know, six months, um, this will be available. But the conference creates immediacy, and it hopefully really amplifies those ideas and, and encourages people to take the jump. Because I, I, my, my guess is that, a small percentage of teachers today have really participated in an online conference, and that's it's a great way to learn, as as you all know well here on TeacherCast. So we want more teachers to be getting involved in seeing the com- seeing those presentations, but then also making connections and becoming uh, a connected educator that is that's participating, not merely consuming, but creating and sharing. So becoming part of the sharing economy. And uh, if you are out there watching this, there is a great presentation happening on Tuesday. Um, I believe it's it is this Tuesday, Wes, that uh, you guys are going to be releasing the conversation that I did, which uh, the original topic actually started off being what does a teacher creator do and how does being a teacher creator help your students? And then a few weeks ago, I had a chance to speak at the ECET2 conference, and they basically said, yeah, tell us your story, and tell us what you do, and tell us how all these different things, and it ended up being this big TED Talk style thing, if you will, basically about these three. Well, two at the moment, but three. And so I just kind of thought it was kind of fitting to bring these guys on and say, if you uh, check out the conference over at k12onlineconference.org, like I said, it's going to be released on Tuesday. You can see the wonderful story of how these three came into the world. And it looks like Robert has a new friend over here. But uh, definitely check that out. Um, Wes, where can we hook up with the K12 online conference? What's your Twitter and all that other good stuff? So the Twitter is just K12 online, and uh, I think we're probably on fa- – we are on Facebook as well as Google+, Plus. but uh, the best way is probably to use Twitter, and uh, the conference presentations go live um, each, each morning um, at 8 a.m. 
Central or Eastern Time, and uh, the the full schedule there. If you just click on 2014 at the top of the page, you can you can see the schedule. And Monday through Friday this next week, and then the following week there'll be uh, four new presentations. So it really is kind of a fire hose of content. There are uh, keynotes that start off each week, uh, but it it gives us a chance to really differentiate our professional development. I don't think anybody listens and watches all the presentations during the conference. You know, you can pick and choose, but there's such a rich array of choices, and um, it's it's a it does uh, as was mentioned. It takes away some of those barriers that we have about time, about money. Um, you know, it, it ta always takes our time, but we're not having to travel outside the classroom, and we're not having to pay. Um, so it's there there are uh, lots of reasons why it's a great professional development option for teachers nice definitely check that out this week and next the k-12 online conference over at k12onlineconference.org guys i want to say thank you so much for taking the time i know we ran over extra time we are going to be having the 14th episode of the 30 second take podcast right after this episode uh sam before we get out of here tell us what's going to be happening next week on the show Next week, we're going to continue our talking about programming, and we're going to talk specifically about programming to support content area learning in all grades. Nice. Uh, Jeff Herb, tell us a little bit about what's going on this week in Instructional Tech Talk. Uh, really excited. I've been working on a, kind of a retrospective with a 20,000-student school district that has been going incrementally one-to-one -one with iPads, and we're looking at what went right, what went wrong, and going to be feeding out some information about what other districts that are considering doing the same uh, can do to prevent the issues that have happened in this district. So I've been working on this for a while now and have had some great interviews with uh, superintendent, assistant superintendents, teachers, students. It's going to be pretty good. So that should be coming out in the next week or two. Excellent. And what's happening with David Saunders this week? This week we're working on uh, – we've got we, – our coding club just – surpassed the 1,000 point mark, and so we're making some great progress there. We're getting ready for our November coding makerspace event, which is going to be all about robots. Nice. Sam, what's going on with this week with uh, Walker World? In Walker World, we are all about robots. Actually, last week, the good folks from Tickle App had us doing some beta testing Thanks, with Spheros, and... Uh, this week, we're going to be writing some more about STEM and robotics. Excellent. And uh, this week in Baby World, Robert today, yesterday actually, just learned how to sit up by himself. So that's pretty cool. And for those of you out there who have been following the Edge of Triplets, they're going to be turning one year old pretty soon. That's crazy. Wow. So they're doing really, Are we really well. going to have well. a surprise party at an unnamed... Uh... Uh, educational conference? Uh, yes, we are going to be having a, a, a big surprise party at the New Jersey Educators Convention. Don't worry about that. So, thank you guys so much for joining us. Stay tuned. We are going to have the 30th, uh, the 30th, the 14th episode of the 30 Second Take podcast with our friend Brad Gustafson. Again, check out the k12onlineconference.org. Uh, we have some great things going on this week. I'm going to try to do this and not drop a baby. Thank you so much. <laughs> In five, four, three, two... <laughs>